Early in the morning on the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala goes to the tomb, where they have laid the body of her beloved Jesus. Her heart is broken. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Cries the bride in the Song of Songs who prefigures Mary. She wants to be the first to come and anoint the body, but who will take the stone away? And when she arrives at the tomb, what does she find? The stone has been taken away. The body of Jesus has disappeared. Someone has stolen the body of her beloved. The tomb is empty, as empty as her heart. She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, crying, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. At Mary's cry of alarm, Peter and the other disciple go running to the tomb. Everybody seems to be running in this early morning light, running out of fear, running because they're confused, running because Jesus has disappeared, and where is the body of Jesus? The gospel writer reveals in a delicate way the relationship between the two disciples. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet, they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Peter, heavy with sadness and guilt, is confused and runs slowly. The other disciple, the beloved, seems less troubled. He had followed Jesus to the cross, so is more sprightly. But he is respected and respectful and lets Peter go into the tomb first. Peter, Cephas, the rock, is still the leader, even though he has denied Jesus. Peter sees the cloth that had been over the head of Jesus folded up in a corner. No thief would have stopped to fold this cloth. The other disciple, in a flash of insight, understands Jesus is surely risen. Peter is still confused and blocked, and he has not yet believed. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. The disciples leave Mary alone with her grief. They do not understand her pain. They seem confused before a woman's tears. Unable to respond, they run home. Mary, weeping, bends over to look into the empty tomb. She sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying. They say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She replies, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She is so sure that Jesus is dead, really dead. Blinded by her tears and depression, she is unable to question the meaning of these two angels. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid them, and I will take him away. Jesus says quietly, Mary. He calls her by name. She who was wildly searching for his dead body. Yet it is Jesus who finds her. There is such tenderness in his voice, such love. It is Jesus. He is alive. 
It is truly the beloved. She cries, Arabonai! Her tears of grief disappear under the passionate force of her love. She throws herself at his feet and clings to him. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene is a bit of a mystery. All we really know about her from John's biography of Jesus is that she was right there at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, and she was first at the tomb, the first person to see the risen Jesus. There's some popular notions about Mary. There's one popular notion that Mary Magdalene was a lady of the night. But neither the Bible nor any other trusted historical source supports that idea. And, and they certainly don't support another misguided notion that Mary Magdalene was somehow romantically involved with Jesus. There are so many myths surrounding Mary Magdalene that there is, yes, even a complete idiot's guide to Mary Magdalene. I looked it up on Amazon, and the first sentence says this. To say that women are complicated creatures is, pretty, is a pretty outdated notion. I'm thinking... Am I an idiot? Because I... <laughs> Not my wife, though. Jeez. <laughs> but when it comes to Mary Magdalene, it couldn't be more true. Now, of course, all the myths surrounding Mary Magdalene, super complicated. The woman herself, her story is pretty straightforward. We learn some extra details about her, her story from Luke's biography of Jesus. And he gives us this background information. He writes this. Jesus traveled around from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So here's what we know about Mary Magdalene. We know that she is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, but not for any other reason than Jesus had been merciful to her. Jesus had healed her when everything seemed hopeless to Mary. And because of that, she was all in. She was all in following Jesus. And because Jesus was capable of healing her, Mary Magdalene also believed something else. Mary Magdalene believed that Jesus was the one God had sent to be the Messiah, to be this one that God was sending to complete his rescue mission, not just for her, but for the whole world. So Mary wholeheartedly believed that too. And because of that, she was all in, banking everything she was, everything she had on Jesus' mission. She banked it all, and then she thought she had lost everything. Jesus wasn't supposed to die like a common criminal. That's not the way the story was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. That's not the promise. And Mary Magdalene was right there, though, as Jesus was nailed to a tree, right there wailing out of grief. This wailing that continued all through that night into the next day, all through the next day, through that night, 
and to the next morning when Mary is the first one up on that morning to go to the tomb by herself. Mary Magdalene wants to be the first one to anoint Jesus' body. She wants to be there alone, though, alone to, to weep, alone to grieve, alone to, to lament this loss. But then the, the chaos and the grief accelerates because when she arrives, she finds Jesus' body is gone, and the only thing she can think of is the body's been stolen, and so she, she runs back to where the other disciples are. She, she tells them, two of them run back. They're confused. They're, they're panicking. They don't know what to do. They run back, and they leave Mary. They leave Mary by the tomb, weeping, completely unraveling. Mary thought the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah was supposed to be good news, Good news about Jesus fulfilling his rescue mission for the whole world. But not if he's dead. There, there can be no good news if Jesus is dead. And I think it's important to linger there for just a little bit. To really let that sit. That there is no good news with a dead Jesus. Whether for Mary Magdalene or for us. To put it really bluntly... The good news is not that Jesus died for you. This statement, Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven, is a useless statement by itself. By itself, the statement doesn't describe the Christian faith, and it certainly doesn't describe this gospel that we claim to believe, this good news. And Mary knew that, which is why she's weeping. Paul knew it too. Paul, one of the the foremost leaders in the first Christian community, And he wrote boldly to churches, proclaiming this, convincing them of this. And he wrote to the the Christian community in Corinth this way. He wrote, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He says again, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So if John's biography had stopped with Mary weeping at the tomb, we should all go home. If the story stops there, it'd be like an an unfinished tragedy. This pointless, meaningless, frustrating, confusing tragedy. Jesus' death without the rest of the story. It's It's like an unresolved chord. It's like winter without any hope of spring. It's like flowers that don't bud. It's like sickness that doesn't go away. It's like war that has no promise of ending. It is bad, bad, bad. So everything hinges on what comes next. Everything. There's Mary at the tomb weeping. And then there's angels. Angels who ask her, why are you weeping, Mary? And she responds and And you think, she would have computed the fact that these are angels. Angels that usually arrive on the scene when there's good news to tell. She doesn't see it. She doesn't even imagine it. She can't imagine anything beyond this moment. So she turns away from them. There's another man standing there. She thinks it's the gardener. And he asks her the same question. She responds the same way, thinking, maybe maybe you took it. Have you took the body? Where's the body? She can't compute anything else beyond the tragedy, beyond the bad news. And one word 
changes that. Mary. Spoken with familiarity, spoken with compassion. I like to think maybe spoken with some playfulness. Mary. And Mary knows the voice immediately. She knows that compassion. She knows that playfulness. No one could speak her name like that. And so, as I imagine, you know that feeling of joy as it sort of ripples through your body and makes everything tingle and you get weak and she, she collapses at Jesus' feet and she's the first one who smells Jesus' risen feet and sees the newly healed wounds on his feet. And then she says in their native language, Rabbi, That's it. Right in this moment, the tragedy becomes a comedy. The chord resolves, spring comes, flowers open, sickness gone, war over. He's alive. This is the turning point of the entire story. And I can only imagine how giddy and breathless with excitement Mary was as she takes off, leaving Jesus there, apparently, (laughs) takes off to go tell the other disciples what's happened. And she bursts through the door and she shares this news. And they're like, what? No. Mary, Mary, how long have you been up? A couple of days? Mary, rest here on this bed. And her insisting, no, but I saw him a lot. Mary, 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 drink this. Control yourself. They don't believe her. They, they, they stuff it in her face. Can you imagine how Mary would have felt in that moment? Shut down. Uh, if you have young kids, you probably have strategies for responding to moments like this. Uh, I was just on vacation on the beach, and our oldest daughter, Eden, bursts in, and she's like, Daddy, there is a big sea monster out in the sea, and he's really scary. You need to come and see him. Um, And it was a good moment for me. I had nothing to do, and so I responded like a dad should. A sea monster? No way! Let me grab this stick to protect us as we go fight this eerie sea monster. All All the while thinking, I am chasing an imaginary sea monster. Times have changed. And that's how the disciples responded to Mary, like a child, but not buying into her story, shutting her down. Have you ever tried to deny a child's imaginary scenario? It's horrible. It never ends well. And, and here's the difference. Mary's story wasn't imaginary. She wasn't daydreaming the fact that she saw the risen Jesus. She wasn't hallucinating. There's no reason for her to make up this story, especially in this time of intense grief. And speaking of making up stories, I think it's good just to take a little sidestep from the story for a second and to acknowledge the fact that a lot of people deny that this is real, that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that this story is made up. And... um, There are loads of arguments for rejecting that claim, that this is made up, to supporting the historical reliability of these accounts that tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't address all that now. That'd be really fun. If you're going to the picnic, we can talk about that then. Um, I think one of the most striking reasons for me that this is real is the fact that in all four accounts of Jesus' life, all four accounts of, of the resurrection, women are recorded as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, in our cultural context, 
Like, okay. Doesn't register. But in the first century, women were not reliable witnesses. Uh, their testimony wasn't trusted. So, so they, they could not testify in a, in a court of law. They, they were not trusted to recount events like this. Uh, it's just the way it was in that culture. So if you're going to launch a popular movement, if you're going to make up a story to turn a tragedy into a comedy, would you put women as the first witnesses of the resurrection? No. <laughs> not if you wanted anybody to take you seriously. Uh, not if you wanted people to, to read that, believe it's true, instead of write you off. To me, the fact that John records Mary Magdalene as the first person to encounter the risen Jesus shows that it's not fiction. In fact, it's stranger than fiction, which means it's reality. No one would have made it up. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Mary really was the first one to see him, and she was the first person to see those freshly healed wounds. For Mary experiencing that was the ultimate sign. We've been talking about signs in this series. This was, this was the moment for Mary when she wholeheartedly believed that Jesus really is who he said he is and that his mission is real and it's unstoppable. Besides being Easter Sunday, it's the last week in this teaching series called Something Else. And we've been looking at these signs of Jesus throughout John's biography uh, and John called them signs instead of miracles because miracles, we can tend to think maybe they're just random acts of power, maybe magic. Uh, but signs, th- those are things that point to something else that's even more real. Signs, these signs that John is recording are pointing to something else about Jesus' identity, something else about Jesus' mission that has the power to transform how we see everything, has the power to transform our lives. And up to these events of crucifixion and resurrection, John had recorded seven signs, very intentional. Jesus did loads of miracles, way more than seven. But John intentionally recorded seven because seven was a really special number uh, in in the first century. Everyone knew seven signifies completion, perfection of something. And so if these seven signs chart Jesus' action and Jesus' mission, John is saying Jesus is completing something. Jesus is perfecting something. So what is it? And our best clue in John is the first three words of the book. In the beginning is how John begins. The only other time that those three words appear in the Bible is the first three words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. What John's doing is he's linking the story of Jesus with the story of God's creation. And he's saying that in Jesus... God, who created the whole world, has become human in order to complete and perfect this creation that's been marred and broken and severely messed up. This is Jesus' mission. And by recording these signs, we see it. We see that very thing happening. Jesus healing blindness, paralyzed limbs. Jesus bringing food and water into great abundance. Jesus calming storms. Jesus raising someone from the dead. It's the repair, the rescue mission happening in Jesus. And then we get to the resurrection. And this is really cool. Resurrection, eighth sign. Eight was also a special number, and eight symbolizes newness, something totally new. So John is saying, 
by, by pointing to the resurrection as a sign of who Jesus is and what his mission is. Jesus isn't just repairing God's creation, kind of putting things back together. He is launching an entirely new creation, an entirely new world that's even better. And this is how he presents the story. Jesus bore all of the brokenness, all of the marredness, all of the messed upness about our existence and about the world. And he put it all to death when he died. And he rose again to make it all new, to, to launch that new creation, to launch that new world that continues to unfold by his spirit. So that is why it is only crucifixion and resurrection together that is good news. Because there is no good news without that resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the pattern of brokenness cannot be reversed. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no triumph over evil. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no freedom for whatever keeps us in bondage. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, death wins and there's no hope. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no good news. It's all bad news. But Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did launch this new creation. And you can be a part of it. We can be a part of it. Here's how that happens. You become a part of it not by running around looking for Jesus like Peter and John were confused. You become a part of it when Jesus finds you and when, like Mary, he speaks your name and calls you. Have you ever had this experience where uh, there's someone you really respect, uh, look up to, and maybe you've never really talked to them before, and, and you, you finally get that moment where, where you can speak with them and, and maybe, you know, learn something about them, and the first thing out of their mouth is your name? Have you ever experienced that? Um, I have, and I want to tell you this little story that's going to reveal my nerdiness, uh, because for me, theologians are like celebrities, so... Uh, there's this one theologian named Kevin, and I really respect his work. Went to a conference back in college where he was there. I was going to meet him for the first time. Really excited. So I uh, get in line or whatever to meet him, and we meet, and we, we talk about his work. He signs my book, right? Uh, nerd. And then I go on my way. And I, I don't think that we'll keep in contact, of course. Uh, a couple years later, three years, I think, I was at another conference where he was speaking, and I really wanted to talk to him again. So I hung back in the shadows while he was talking to this important-looking group of people, thinking that after he was done talking, I could catch him on his way to his next meeting. Uh, but before he was done, he saw me and stopped his conversation and said, Wes, hey, good to see you. Want to walk with me as, we, as I go to my next thing? And I'm like, What? <laughs> Uh, I had no idea that that he would even remember me, let alone know my name, right? There's something so personal affirming when someone really knows your name. It's an amazing feeling. And that nerdy experience would, would only pale in comparison to an experience of the risen Jesus speaking your name, knowing your name. And he does. The one who rose again to launch 
the new creation, knows your name. That's how personal he is. And when he calls your name, his new creation life becomes yours. Uh, when Jesus calls your name, it's not, not like that experience of Mary where they're face to face. We'll have that experience one day. Uh, but when Jesus calls your name, what I mean by that, it's a more internal reality uh, where Jesus calls, it's communicated by his spirit. And often it's this moment when you realize that this good news of Jesus' story, his death and resurrection, that it's not just news of a distant event that you can read about on your phone or something. It's not, this isn't just news that's good advice that you could glean from some self-help books. Like, this is real good news for you, and it radically alters your life. That's the moment when you know that Jesus has spoken your name. Hearing Jesus call your name means that you know that Jesus died and rose again for you. You know that he is here to give you life and freedom so that you can belong to him, so that you can find your identity in him and have hope in him. It's about all of God's words to his people becoming yours, becoming true for you. Like there's these beautiful words that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Hearing God call your name means these words becoming true for you, where God says in Isaiah 43, do not fear I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And what's so wonderful about Mary Magdalene's story is that she shows us that none of us are beyond being called by God like that. Because Mary Magdalene, this, this woman with past, this woman deep in grief, this woman who has the good news standing right in front of her and she, it doesn't compute. Uh, that woman is loved by God, called by name, and drawn into this new life. And so whatever your past and whatever your present struggles, whatever your questions or doubts in the moment, the risen Jesus knows your name and he longs for you to respond to his call. And if you do, that new life, new creation life that he has launched is yours. And it's a gift. It's not something that you've earned. It's new life, resurrection life, is a gift from the risen Jesus. And Paul, again, talks about this beautifully. As he's writing letters, he's, he's using this language of when you hear that call and the life becomes yours, it's like you're raised with Christ. This is the language that he uses. Raised with him in all of his power and freedom and goodness and beauty and strength. And then because of that, you can live like him. He calls you to, to improvise resurrection. So in Colossians, this letter to the, to the church in, in Colossae, he makes this connection and he uses this logic. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, put to death anything that doesn't correspond with this resurrection life. Put it to death and, and bring to life, clothe yourself with, practice Everything that is fitting with this resurrection life, compassion, kindness, goodness, patience, love, self-control. He's saying forgive and serve and laugh and love, not because you had anything to do with earning this new creation, 
but because you've received it as a gift, and this will be a sign that it's yours, that you're a part of this story now too. In his poem, Manifesto, The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front, uh, Wendell Berry captures this beautifully, I think. It's a, it's a poem about living this out in very practical ways. And earlier in the poem, he gives some examples. He says, so friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. And he gives all kinds of different examples after that. Comes all the way to the end of the poem and ends with two words. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. Now, there's a pastor and writer, Eugene Peterson. He has a book with that title. It's a beautiful book. And I just want to end with a quote from the introduction because I think Peterson gets this right. Gets right this gift of receiving something that is totally beyond us and yet totally transforms us. So he writes, We live our lives in the practice of what we do not originate and cannot anticipate. When we practice resurrection, we continuously enter into what is more than we are. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus, alive and present, who knows where we are going before or better than we do, which is always from glory to glory. So please pray with me. Lord, like Mary, help us to hear you call our name, to know that you are alive, to know that you love us, that you are offering us new life. Thank you that with your resurrection, you conquered sin, you repaired brokenness, you destroyed death, you established hope, and move us then to receive this not as uh, distant news that's unrelated to our lives or convenient good advice that's just about us, but good news, real good news for us that has radically transformed the world and will radically transform our lives. Uh, give us courage and wisdom by your spirit to, to practice resurrection so that we can become signs too, uh, signs of your new creation, signs that this is advancing, signs that this is true in whatever we do. So thank you for your life. Thank you for this hope. In the name of the risen Jesus, we pray. Amen. I read a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. It's a glorious chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, about resurrection and, and life to come and resurrection of the body. And right at the end, there is this victory statement. So I'm going to read this from the message paraphrase and receive this as God's word to you, this benediction. Death swallowed up by triumphant life. Who got the last word, death? Death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening and the law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, gone. The gift of the master, Jesus Christ. Glory be to him. Go in grace.